0: Good morning and welcome to Daring Dialogues. I am your host, Jonte Charles. I hope that you have been having a great and wonderful day. Listen, I of all people can tell you that this has been a week. It has been a trying week. Um, I have not been feeling my best this entire week, but I have pressed through. I have served my clients that I needed to serve this week I have gotten some painting done and uh, sealed some of my canvases and I'm going to be painting again this weekend because Lord knows I'm excited to get back to it. So um, I do fine arts as my profession. It's not a hobby for me. Um, so I will be painting this weekend. I'm actually going to be painting a whole new series and Lord willing, you know, the whole series may sell to one person or I may sell them by canvases. I would really like them to stay together though, because they're kind of a series. So, um, or who knows, 2023, you might see them in someone's museum. It just depends on how it goes. Um, but yeah, so I understand this week has probably been hard on a lot of us, especially with hearing some of the news in the political realm. Um, but I just say hang in, there, hang in there, hang in there, hang in there, hang in there. I know the Lord has promised me that November is going to be a beautiful month, and it has been. I will say that it has been overall a very beautiful, inspiring, encouraging uh, creative month it has. Um, let's see, not this coming Sunday, but the last Sunday of this month, I will be turning four five. So I'm excited about that. I'm thanking God for uh, getting me to this point. I'm thanking God for life, for health, for strength. Um, I'm looking forward to continuing to work towards a project here in my community. So if you would like to celebrate my birthday, one way that you could do that is by donating. You could donate some from, from, through some of my favorite numbers, um, 27 or 33. You can donate with the birth uh, number that I'm turning, my 45th birthday. Any of those numbers would be wonderful. Uh, But I was sitting up here getting excited about um, what I want to do in my community because I really do feel that there's a need for it, Um, a need for a creative space for um, Black and Indigenous and persons of color to feel comfortable going into that space and being creative. Um, I thought about a spot that I used to go to in Virginia when um, my whole world was like falling apart and I didn't know what to do or where to go or where to turn and this particular shop although it's not open anymore it was open the entire time that I needed it to be open like it was a oasis in the middle of a desert and when I say oasis I mean it was like a cafe but they he would do um open mics and we're still I'm still friends with the owner um He would do open mics, he would do poetry readings, he would have art pieces all over the walls for sale, Uh, he would invite local bands in to come and play, he had like a lending library in there so you could bring a book and take a book, Um, and he would just leave his space open, it was like a cafe, sort of a cafe coffee shop, but he would leave his space open for anybody who just needed a break like you didn't, you didn't have to come in there and necessarily buy something, although many people did, um, you know, but it was a space, it was a reprieve from whatever was happening. And for us, for my husband and I, we were like, white supremacy was like on our tail. (laughs) I'm just not going to lie about it. Um, and so this space, was an oasis in the middle of a desert. It was like one of the places that really made us feel welcome when we came to Virginia, Um, not really knowing anybody and the people that we knew, family members, literally like left us for dead and abandoned us, whole other story. Um, (laughs) But they became, and the people that would come to that shop on a regular basis, we all kind of became like a little bit of a, a community. Um, And so there would be all kinds of people there from all walks of life. Nobody was like rude or disrespectful. Um, Everybody was just there to get along. People would come there and read and they would have discussions and they would meet people and be introduced to people. Um, You know, so some of the friendships that I gained in that space, and that was over a decade ago, I still have those friendships that came out of that one oasis and space of creativity. So that is what I want to actually bring over to my community. I want to bring a space similar to that. And of course, I need capital to do that. (laughs) So one of the things I am asking for my birthday is if you would participate in donating to that capital campaign. Um, This has been something that's been in my heart for years now. But I am really starting to pick up the pace on the capital part of it because I'm not getting any younger. And I would like to see it come to pass and come to fruition. So, um, sorry about that, Pastor Ben. Hopefully it won't be spooling anymore. Um, But yeah, so if you would like to give, again, dollar sign Life Nation is my cash app. My Venmo is at Life-Nation, capital L, capital N, at Life-Nation is my Venmo. And PayPal is paypal.me forward slash Life Nation. And just put in the comment, you can either put um, Culture Center or you can put HBD for happy birthday. So I will know that that is where those funds are supposed to go. All right. Today, it is Get Free Friday and Finance Friday, and we're looking at The Whiteness of Wealth. We're back in that book. How the Tax System Impoverishes Black Americans and How We Can Fix It. How the Tax System Impoverishes Black Americans and How We Can Fix It. The Whiteness of Wealth by Dorothy A. Brown. She has been talking about the great unequalizer. the great unequalizer, college spending, what has happened to colleges, what has happened to college enrollment in institutions, and what happens with that debt. So we're going to read on and read through and and try to find a good stopping place today. I think I found one, so let's see if we can get to it. Better outcomes, better resources. Why wouldn't all black college students simply choose selective institutions? Because these same institutions disproportionately admit white students, leaving black students attending under-resourced colleges and falling financially further behind. Non-white college enrollment at all institutions, public and private, Two year and four year has increased over the past 20 years from 30% in 1996 to 47% in 2016. If you separate out the data on two and four year institutions, however, white representation is much higher 63% at nonprofit four year colleges in 2016, according to a Pew Research study. White students are five times more likely to go to a selective university than black students. The pattern holds even when controlling for income. In fact, the gap grows as income grows. Higher income white Americans are four times more likely to attend selective schools than higher income black Americans. When At the lowest income levels, whites are two to three times as likely to attend selective schools as blacks. At every income level, a statistically significant higher percentage of white students attend selective universities than blacks. According to a New York Times analysis, even as colleges have begun admitting more non-white applicants overall, the percentage of black students at the nation's top colleges is roughly the same today as it was 35 years ago. So one of the insidious things about white supremacy in this country is the fact that it can have you thinking that you're moving forward when in fact you're standing still. That the policies and procedures and practices that are put in place are to give you the illusion of inclusion and moving forward while at the same time either putting you in a holding pattern or setting you back. And what we're seeing um, along several different Uh, factors, right, in terms of wealth building, is that this happens to be the issue that almost in every factor that you look at in terms of Black wealth or Black growth, that the numbers really have not moved very much in the past 35 to 50 years. So you have to ask yourself, Why are those numbers not moving? And a lot of it has to do with the policies and practices that are put into place, i.e. conserving power and conserving and preserving wealth, almost like freezing it. So you get the illusion that you're being included, but the reality is the wealth has been frozen or put on pause. Just as purchasing a home in a white neighborhood can require significant financial and emotional investment for a black family, attending a predominantly white elite institution can present financial and emotional obstacles for black students. Cost is a factor. The most selective institutions are expensive, with the University of Chicago topping the 2019 list at $80,000 per year of of tuition fees and housing. Just because the sticker price is 80000 does not mean every student pays that price. Some pay less or get it at a discount because their college awarded them scholarships or financial aid grants. But tuition doesn't tell the whole story. Even a student with a generous financial aid package can lack money for textbooks, housing, and food. Anthony Abraham Jack, an assistant professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education and author of The Privileged Poor, successfully petitioned Harvard to keep its dining halls open during spring break after a low-income student told him that the closed dining halls meant salmon to students like her. When Black students do attend the most selective institutions, they are a distinct minority. The 2016 Pew Research analysis found that on average, at very selective four-year schools, the student body was only 9% Black compared with 56% White. 14% Latinx, 16% Asian, and 5% who identified in some other way. When the student is one of a few black people their peers encounter every day, or sometimes the only black person, it often means performing what I call racism triage. Facing a broad range of aggressions from peers and superiors, but lacking the capacity to respond to each and every one, you reserve your energies for only the worst. Racism triage became a part of my life early on when my mother discovered that both my sister and I were being mistreated by white teachers at our elementary school. My first grade teacher, unhappy that my grades were the best in the class, told my mother that she'd hope she'd be there when I fell off my high horse. My sister's fourth grade teacher meanwhile deliberately lowered her grades so that a black student wouldn't have the best scores in the class. She bragged about her deception to a white friend who then tipped off my mother, Miss Dottie, was an involved and well-liked parent at the school. While both incidents were harmful, Mommy said she was willing to put up with my teacher because I was getting 100s with her racism. My sister, on the other hand, was having her test results falsified and that my mother couldn't tolerate. She took action, removing us from the school with the racist teachers and using my grandmother's address to enroll us in another one. Today, my mother's lie about our home address might have resulted in her being charged with a crime. By the time high-achieving Black students get to college, it's very likely they'll have performed a lot of racism triage, which leads many to seek out institutions where they can stop. As one 2013 graduate of Spelman College puts it, I wanted to go somewhere where I wasn't going to be the smart Black girl. I just wanted to be Rachel." A musician and an international studies major, Rachel attended a performing arts high school where she got excellent grades. She would always planned to go to college, she says, but at some point during high school, she began to think about what it would mean to attend an elite school as a black student. You start to see patterns. You get into the honor courses and you're the only one. Check. You get accepted into honor societies and you're the only one, she says. It wasn't something that someone explicitly said. It was like the writings on the wall. Rachel chose Spellman, another outstanding HBCU in Atlanta specifically, to spare herself the experience of being the smart black girl. Black students at predominantly white institutions often aren't as lucky and face tokenism, microaggressions, and outright disbelief that they belong. In a 2014 photo essay called I Too Am Harvard, Black Harvard students posed with text that reflected some aspect of their college experience. One student held a sign that said, you're lucky to be Black, so easy to get into college, and attributed the remark to a former friend. The institutions themselves perpetuate the problem, too, by not considering the ways they deprive Black or low-income students of the same college experience as their white peers. Take the work-study model, for example. Why make a lower-income student's attendance at the university contingent on their employment there? Or consider on-campus job recruitment. Are colleges ensuring that the companies who recruit have fair hiring practices, or are they providing opportunities for white students at the expense of black students? Even the question of who works for the university affects black and white students differently. In 2018, a black student at Smith College, an exclusive women's college in Massachusetts, was eating lunch in a dormitory when the police arrived. An employee had called them saying that the student seemed out of place. And because black enrollment at predominantly white institutions has not increased significantly over time, today's black students often find themselves fighting last century civil rights battles over representation and fair treatment. At Emory University, where I teach, the author says, the undergraduate student population is just 8% Black. A former student activist pointed out that a 2015 list of demands for a more equitable campus was depressingly similar to a list from 1969. All of these things historically have been asked for time and time and again and again. The university has somehow pushed it to the side. Former residence hall director and graduate Troy Zell Carr told the student newspaper, 50 years ago, students that looked like me were asking the same questions. And to this day, we still have not gotten the same things. And that's frustrating. Among the unmet demands, 46 years apart, were increases in black faculty and administrators and counseling services geared toward experiences of black students in predominantly white environments. If the most selective and best resourced colleges and universities aren't welcoming and accessible for black students, what does that leave? The broad pool of less selective four-year colleges where black graduation rates decline regardless of income. Research shows that six years after first enrolling in college, even higher income black and Hispanic students are far less likely to have earned a bachelor's degree than their higher income white peers. To understand the reasons behind this discrepancy, we need to go from the top of the education pyramid to the bottom where for-profit colleges lie. When students at for-profits are eligible for federal financial aid, that's essentially the only opportunity they have in common with students at nonprofits. For-profit institutions do not award scholarships because their goal is to increase returns for their shareholders, just like any other for-profit corporation for-profits are focused on the bottom line and far more subject to the ups and downs of the economy and only one in five black students who attends for-profit college graduates 80 percent leave with significant debt and no degree the abrupt closure of argosy university in 2019 provides some insight into how this occurs for years this was a f- chain of for-profit colleges operating around the united states It had 17,600 students enrolled across campuses in 12 states, including one in Atlanta. We used to say that Argosy was the largest HBCU, a behavioral health clinician in the juvenile court system who spent eight years at Argosy Atlanta, Chris. This was a program with 78% of Black students enrolled. Working, she was, toward her Doctor of Psychology degree A single mother who helps care for her aging parents, Chris had previously earned a master's degree at Argosy and felt the experience was a perfect fit for her lifestyle. My blood boils when I hear people say for-profit schools is a joke. The professors, most of them were from really rigorous schools, giving other adults, adults that were not traditional learners or working adults, a stellar education. We're going on weekends and evenings, and we're working, and we're getting our education, and we're coming out into the industry with the knowledge. Argosy's trouble, however, began in 2017 when its parent group, Education Management Corporation, owned by several private equity groups like Goldman Sachs, sold the chain of institutions to a new parent company, Dream Center Foundation, an offshoot of a California-based Pentecostal missionary group. The new parent group had never run an educational institution before, but said its goal was to transform all of the parent groups holding into nonprofit colleges. In addition to all these campuses, this included the Art Institute. In hindsight, Chris says, she saw the signs of disruption as soon as 2018. Classes were not meeting. It used to be the halls were teeming with people. Then all of a sudden, started wondering how come things were messed up when her financial aid was abruptly reduced from twenty thousand dollars to seven thousand with no explanation it didn't make sense but she assumed it was only happening to her in early 2019 she was beginning her dissertation when the university abruptly announced that it was shuttering all its campuses in some cases within days The plans to convert to a non-profit had failed and DCF entered receivership. They literally locked all the doors. The closure left her and thousands of other students with no win choices, retain their debt from Argosy and try to transfer some of their credits to another for-profit college, or discharge the debt and lose all the credit hours, time, study, grades, that had been completed. After weeks of deliberation, Chris decided to discharge her debt at this point, which was close to $140,000 plus interest and lose the work that she had completed. Other for-profit schools recruited her, she says, but few accredited programs would accept all of her transferred credits, which meant repeating and paying a second time for some courses, requiring additional loans on top of the $140,000 she already owed ultimately she chose not to complete her doctorate deciding that discharging her loans would offer greater value than any potential increased earnings from the degree no one can take the knowledge that i have away she says but unfortunately the labor market values the degree alone tell me about it <laughs> according to pay scale the average salary for the holder of a doctorate in psychology is 78000 at the job she held her salary was around fifty-six thousand. Choosing a for-profit institution has inherently greater risks than choosing a nonprofit. But it's misguided to simply say that Black Americans should just make different choices. In her eloquent examination of for-profit schools, lower ed, Dr. Tressy McMillan Cotton, a, soci- a sociology professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, argues that for nonprofit institutions. Selective ones fetishize education without actually making space for the people that you're requiring this education from. Wow. Lower ed can exist precisely because elite higher ed does. The latter legitimizes the education gospel while the former absorbs all manner of vulnerable groups of people who buy into it. Single mothers, Downsized workers, veterans, persons of color, people transitioning from welfare to work. Students at for-profit colleges are likely to be increasingly vulnerable in the years ahead, particularly since the 2019 repeal of an Obama-era policy requiring for-profit colleges to prove that their graduates could find gainful employment. And even those who make it through statistically earn less than their peers in similar programs in the public sector. According to a Brookings Institution guide and study, public sector students outperform for-profit students on nearly every measure, suggesting that the overwhelming majority of for-profit students would be better off attending a public institution. But what if attending a public community college is not an option? Our results suggest that many for-profit students would be better off attending or not attending colleges at all. Now, if you're an educator, this is some dire stuff, right? So, I just want us to think about that because oftentimes, I know for me as a professional, your pay does not increase very much if you have a bachelor's, right? Or if you have a master's. But where do you go after a PhD? <laughs> I'm just going to let that marinate for a moment. If you're telling all these people to go run and get a PhD and they're spending all this money. And then they're looking at the salary you're offering for a PhD. It may be ten, maybe $20,000 more than a master's, but they're $140,000 into debt. I mean, that may even out over 10 years, 15 years, but people are really starting to say, hey, is it really worth it for me to go get this PhD? I know people are. So these programs, policies, all of that has to be taken into account. And it's, uh, as the writers have said, and as the research is showing, it's not getting any better. Do we want people to get into higher education? Yes. If higher education is not your thing and your thing is, hey, I need, I want to go into a vocation. I want to work with my hands. There are some technical things that I am good at. Then go that route. I know we'd like to believe it, but not college is not for everybody. But who it is for, we got to have better options out here than the for-profit system that is many times predatory against marginalized groups. We are not done with this chapter. We'll continue it the next time we come back to it on another Friday. If you would like to come in, if you're uh, able to come in, you can click the camera and I will bring you on. I'll stay here for a moment or so. But this is something that is concerning. You don't want the coming generation to look at the prospects for education and look at the prospects for jobs and decide, you know what, I'm just going to axe this all together. If you've been listening on Anchor, Spotify, Google Play, I want to thank you again for your time and attention. We'll be back the first part of next week. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then we are going to be taking a break and we'll resume on December 1st. So we will be here next week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. We're going to take a break, um, Thanksgiving break, and then we'll be back after my birthday, December 1st. Thank you again for your time and attention and we'll see you next week. God bless.